Well, I was born in Laconia, New Hampshire, and I was raised right here in Gilmanton Ironworks. My mom still lives in the house I grew up in. I attended Gilmanton Elementary School from K to 8th grade before being accepted to Brewster Academy for high school. I wanted to go as far away as I could within driving distance for college, and so I attended Muhlenberg College in Allentown, Pennsylvania, with a double major in music and communication, which means I could write songs about being unemployed. And that's what I did for a while. Now, my plan was to move to Philadelphia to work. That is, until I met a girl. In the providence of God, he saved both Jess and me together and grew us together in several different churches. I was in many different careers. After a seven-year career in financial services industry, the Lord opened up the door for ministry, more specifically church planting. And when we considered where to plant a new church, there were several towns in New Hampshire that were options. But in the end, we decided on Gilmanton. And the question is, well, why? Well, because we knew that there was no Bible church in town. And I knew this because I was born and raised here. I knew the town, I knew the people, I knew the culture, I knew it was available, I knew that we had to travel a long distance to go to church when I was a kid. However, I approached this ministry with trepidation, partially because planting a church in New England is a tall order, but also because I knew what the Lord says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 57, about doing ministry in your hometown. Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own hometown and in his own household. But that's only part of the drama of this verse. And so we're going to look at this all together. Turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to finish up this chapter today. Matthew chapter 13. The final verses of Matthew 13, they bring us really out of the region of Galilee, uh, near the Sea of Galilee, into a town of Nazareth. Jesus had been teaching the crowds in parables, and now he's going to depart from that area, and he's going to go back home. Matthew chapter 13 starting in verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did, you, where did this man get this wisdom and these miracle, miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. And so verse 53, as we go back to the beginning of this passage, verse 53 is really a transitional verse in the passage. It closes out the parable section of Matthew's Gospel and shifts the focus toward Jesus' journey home. Now, ever since uh, chapter 4, verse 13, Jesus has been living in the seaside town of Capernaum where there was a large fishing community. And for the better part of a year, that was his base of operations. But now he's going to depart from there and he's going to go back home. Why is he going home? We don't really know 
There's some speculation. It could be that it was in response to his family asking him in chapter 12, verse 46, to go back with them. Or it could be because things were heating up in Capernaum and he wanted some reprieve. But it also could simply be that he wanted to go back to his home, to his roots, and to minister to his childhood friends and family. Verse 54 says that Jesus came to his hometown. We know that that's Nazareth. He wasn't born there, but he was raised there. A parallel account in Mark 6 includes that the disciples, they followed him there, so they were with him in his hometown. And once he arrived there, he began teaching them in their synagogue. It was custom for traveling rabbis to to be given the chance and the honor to teach in local synagogues on the Sabbath. And Jesus, although he had no formalized training, he was growing in popularity all throughout the Galilean region. So people knew who he was. In fact, Luke 4.14 says that news about him spread throughout all the surrounding district, and he began teaching in their synagogues and was praised by all. So he was becoming somewhat of a local legend, a local hero in his teaching. And so now this sort of moderately famous rabbi is coming home. He's going to come back to his hometown. He's going back to the town he grew up in, and they're going to invite him to come and teach in the synagogue, most likely the very synagogue he attended when he was a child. However, once he begins teaching, Matthew records that the result of this teaching is that people became astonished. The Greek word is ekpleso. It literally means to strike, like with shock or even panic. They were sort of startled and And sort of not amazed in a good way, but shocked by his teaching. Why were they so shocked? Well, because Jesus was teaching them things that they never thought they would hear coming out of his mouth. What was he teaching? We get a window into this in Luke's Gospel. Scholars are not really sure if Matthew 13 is parallel uh, to Luke chapter 4. But it does give us a window into his teaching in Nazarene. Let me just read these verses to you just so you have an idea of what's going on here. In Luke 4.16, it says, He came to Nazareth when he brought up, and he was, as this was custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, and he sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And then he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him, and he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So he's teaching on messianic prophecy. Now at first the people appreciate his teaching, they actually like what he's saying, but very quickly the tone begins to change for him, because he begins at that point in Luke to pronounce judgment on the people in the synagogue for rejecting the Messiah. In Matthew's gospel, the people are already, they're astonished by the teaching, but Luke 4 says that they get so angry they actually try to kill him. They try to shove him off a cliff and murder him. The difference in response has led scholars to conclude that this might be two separate occurrences, both taking place in Nazareth, and so maybe they were a couple weeks or a couple months apart, But the bottom line is that he comes back to his people and they're not receiving the message. Going back to Matthew, he's teaching the things that are shocking to them. And they respond to this by saying, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? At this point, 
We know that he's just not just teaching, he's also healing as well. Elsewhere in John 7.15, the crowds respond by asking, how has this man become learned having never been educated? He didn't go to, he didn't get trained. He wasn't a, a young Pharisee or Sadducee. He wasn't an aspiring rabbi when he was a kid. Where did he get all this stuff? This blows their mind. Why does this blow their mind? Well, because they knew him. Verses 55 and 56. They asked the question, Is not this the carpenter's son? Is, is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, aren't, aren't they all with us? Where did this man then get all these things? Now, these are rhetorical questions that they're asking. But it opens up a series of insights into the earthly life and family of Jesus. Now, we explored some of this back in chapter 12, if you remember, but we'll do a little overview today. The first question they ask is this, is not this the carpenter's son? Now, the first thing we need to notice here is that they don't actually name Joseph, Jesus' adoptive father. They only call him the carpenter. It was not uncommon for Jewish sons to follow in their father's footsteps following his trade, and so we believe that prior to his ministry, which is about age 30, that Jesus would have been employed in the same trade as as his earthly father. In fact, Mark's gospel records that they call him the carpenter. He also is a carpenter. As for the trade itself, the Greek word tekton can be translated carpenter. It could also be translated builder. Uh, It's a general term for craftsman. Since most of the homes were built out of mud bricks, there's even a theory that Jesus was some kind of a mason. However, in the second century, a teacher named Justin Martyr noted that Jesus was in fact a carpenter, but not of homes. Justin Martyr says he was actually a carpenter and he made plows and yokes. He was a tradesman that way. Regardless of the actual trade, because we don't really know. But regardless of the trade, the point here is that the people of uh, of Nazareth, they acknowledge Jesus not as a teacher, but as a tradesman. And they ask the question, is not his mother Mary? I mean, we know, we know his family. Both Matthew and Luke record the events surrounding the virgin birth. Mary, who's the wife of Joseph, becomes pregnant miraculously with the aid of the Holy Spirit. Of course, people don't believe the story. They don't believe a word of this. In fact, there's even in John eight forty one, the crowds are berating Jesus, and they actually bring out the fact that they believe he was conceived in fornication. And the way they frame that is that they kind of turn it back around. They say, well, well, we weren't conceived in fornication, i.e., we know you were. So there's this hanging accusation throughout Jesus' entire life that, that mom and dad, that didn't go well. That mom didn't, she wasn't faithful somehow, and he was conceived in fornication and adultery. So they, they know the story, and whether or not they actually buy into it or, or not, the bottom line is that they, they know the family. They know his mother. They also know his siblings, and even more, his brothers. They name them James and Joseph and Simon and Judas. Now, we know nothing about Joseph and Simon. There's nothing in Scripture apart from just their name. But we do know that James and his brother Judas, is also known as Jude, they become believers and they serve the church in Jerusalem. Both James and Jude pen the epistles that are attributed to them. And so... Epistle of James, the Epistle of Jude, those are Jesus' half-brothers. Now, we don't give any information about 
the identity of his sisters. There's nothing in there about his sisters, what their names are, or how many. We don't know. But the bottom line is that because it's plural, we know there's at least two. So Jesus has at least four brothers and at least two sisters, if not more. And they ask the question, are, are they not all with us? Why do they ask this question? Because at the time, all of Jesus' younger siblings, all of them were alive, and any one of them could be brought into questioning about Jesus' upbringing. You guys live with, with your brother growing up in the household. You, where did he get all this stuff? What, what's going on here? And it leads us to ask, why go through all the trouble of rehearsing Jesus' family connections? I think it's really what comes down to is this. They're asserting, really, this truth. We know where Jesus comes from. He's just like one of us. Furthermore, he's nobody special. So, who does he think he is? How dare you come home and try to tell us anything? How dare you come home and pronounce judgment on people for rejecting you as Messiah? Who do you think you are? That's the the sentiment here. And yet, even though they don't know who he is, in terms of, you know, where he's getting all this stuff from, the question really is, where does he get all this stuff from? It's incongruent to them. It doesn't make any sense. We know your family, Jesus, and yet, where did you get this? How are you able to teach the scriptures having not been trained? How can you heal people? And yet you're not a healer. Where did, all you, where did you get all these things? And this leads us into really an existential question. Who is Jesus? That's the question for the ages. This is the question, the one question, that dominated the focus of the early church. I don't know if uh, many of you keep tabs on any of my literary output I try to write as much as I can in the margins, and I put out books when I can. But right now, I'm working on a book on the early church creeds. I'm hoping to have it finished up in the next couple of months. So I've been doing a lot of study on the early church battles in the first couple centuries. And let me tell you, it is fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. In the year 318, in the city of Alexandria, there was an aging teacher named Arius. Arius. And he caught the attention of a local bishop named Alexander but he didn't catch it in a good way. In attempting to preserve what he believed he was doing was preserving the oneness of God. God is one, the Bible says, and so Arius taught that only the Father was God, and the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was a created being. He has to be, because God is one. One of the statements that he was caught on was this statement. There once was a time when he was not, referring to Christ. And that's, that was a very popular sentiment. It floated around for a long time. Well, as soon as Alexander heard this, he sprung to action to defend the deity of Christ. And so, this was such a contentious debate that eventually Emperor Constantine heard about this, and he called a council to settle the matter. The first council was the Ecumenical Council of Nicaea in 325, And about 300 bishops gathered together. They heard all the arguments, they examined the scriptures, and they finally arrived at a creed. In its earliest form, the Creed of Nicaea affirmed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, 
begotten of the Father, only begotten from the essence of the Father. And it says, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father. Now, this wording is important. It wasn't that the church believed that Christ was similar to God, similar to God, but rather he was of the same divine essence. And there was a word that was used, homoousios. He was the same substance or essence as the Father. Let me explain this to you. It would be like if I took a cup and dipped it into a bucket of water, okay, and I took that one cup and I poured it into two vessels, same water into both vessels. The contents of those vessels would be of the same substance. Not a similar substance, same well, two different buckets, same substance. That's the idea, that Jesus Christ is of the same substance, divine substance, as the Father. And so it is with Christ. But the issue wasn't settled. Years later, a reactionary movement arose for the teaching of a man named Apollinaris. Now, he rejected Arianism. He says, no, that's totally wrong. But he struggled to understand, well, how then could Christ be divine and yet embody human form? Because after all, the human form is sinful. The human mind is sinful. And if Jesus takes on a a human mind, he's going to think impure, sinful thoughts. And so we know that Jesus is not sinful. So therefore, he can't be truly human. He's divine, but he's not truly human. And so he, he sacrificed the humanity of Jesus in favor of the divinity of Jesus. And so now we enter into the Council of Constantinople in 381. And the key theologians of this council came to understand that there is a difference between God's divine substance, or his usia, and his personhood, also known as his hypostasis. In other words, Jesus Christ could be of the same divine essence as God the Father, and yet be distinct from God the Father in his personhood. Of course, this still left questions about Christ. How could the second person of the Trinity identify with both God and man? Enter another teacher, Nestorius, who tried to solve the problem by teaching that Jesus Christ is basically a split personality. That he's, he's part God and, and part man. Two natures and two persons. In reaction to that, another teacher named Eutyches came along and went so far to say that, no, 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 they're not divided, they're actually smushed together. So now you can't tell the difference between his divine nature and his human nature. You confused yet? The early church was. They struggled with this for centuries. They, they had the same look on their faces that you guys have right now. They didn't know which end was up, and, and they were getting confused with the verbiage and usia versus hypostasis versus physis versus all these different Greek words, and who's saying what, and did he really say that? And it was so confusing for them, until finally, in 451, a massive council met together in the city of Chalcedon to determine what was biblical orthodoxy. They knew that they were affirming the Nicene Creed. The Nicene Creed was correct. But they needed some clarity on the doctrine of Christ. And so a bishop from Alexandria named Cyril, who had pioneered a theological term to help explain the existence of Christ, he called it the hypostatic union. The hypostatic union. That they are, Jesus has two distinct natures, human and divine, in one person of Christ. He is the God-man. The God-man. And at the Council of Chalcedon, built out the last statement, they arrived at this definition. This is what they actually came up with. 
following the saintly fathers, we all with one voice teach the confession of one Son and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. The same perfect in divinity and perfect in humanity. The same truly God and truly man of a rational soul and a body. Consubstantial with the Father as regards his divinity. And the same consubstantial with us as regards his humanity. Like us in all respects except for sin. Begotten before the ages from the Father as regards his divinity. And in the last days, the same for us and for our salvation from Mary, the virgin God-bearer, as regards his humanity, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, acknowledged in two natures, which undergo no confusion, no change, no division, no separation. At no point was the difference between the natures taken away through the union, but rather the property of both natures is preserved and comes together into a single person and a single subsistent being. He is not parted or divided into two persons, but is one and the same only begotten Son, God, Word, Lord Jesus Christ, just as the prophets taught from the beginning about Him, and as the Lord Jesus Christ Himself instructed us, and as the creed of the fathers handed it down to us. In other words... Jesus is truly man, but he's also truly God. And it's a great mystery. But here is why the people in Nazareth were stumbling. Because they didn't understand who he was. Or I should even add, who he is. They saw him grow up as a, as a boy and become a man. They saw him in his humanness. They knew his parents. They knew his siblings. He was a Nazarene through and through. He's one of our guys. Except they never caught him in any sin, which is weird. That's strange. He never actually did anything wrong. I've got to think about something. He must have done something, right? He couldn't think of anything. He's sinless. He's flawless. And yet, this Nazarene boy who became a man spoke with divine wisdom and exercised the power of God over creation. And even a Pharisee named Nicodemus in chapter 3 tells Jesus at one point, he says, Teacher, we know that you've come from God. We know that you're a man sent from God because no one can do these signs that you do unless God was with him. We all know. So the question is, how does a human man wield the power and the wisdom of God unhindered? The answer, he must be the God-man. He must. He must be two natures in one. The perfect unity in Christ. Unable to reconcile these two realities, how do they respond? Did they give it a ponder and they say, well, you know what? Maybe there's something we're not quite understanding here. Maybe we should listen a little longer. Maybe we should get to know him and see what he's talking about. Is that how they responded to him? No. Look at verse 57. They took offense at him. They took offense. Why? Because they didn't like the message of the gospel. They don't want to hear it. I don't need you coming back here. By the way, I was around when your father was running around. I don't need you coming back here and telling me that I'm a sinner and need to be saved and need to repent and trust in you. So they got angry at him. Now, if that message had been delivered from a mysterious wandering stranger, 
maybe they would have stopped and pondered. You know the old saying, familiarity breeds contempt. In fact, they, they couldn't receive his message because of who he was, or at least who they thought he was. That led Jesus to, to say to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and in his own household. What is a prophet? A prophet is a messenger from God, bringing the divine word. And by saying this, Jesus is claiming that he is, in fact, a prophet. And more than a prophet, he is the prophet, promised and prophesied back in Deuteronomy 18.15 with Moses. Moses tells the people, there's going to be a greater prophet coming, the real prophet. Don't listen to me, listen to him. He is the true embodiment of a prophet with divine words in his mouth, speaking to God's people. However, John 1.11 maintains that he came to his own but his own did not receive him. They rejected his message because they rejected him. And their excuse for rejecting the message was, well, because he's one of us. We saw him grow up. We know his family. We know his sisters and brothers. He has no right to tell us to repent of our sins and trust in him. After all, that's only Jesus, the carpenter's son. Now, they would have honored any other prophet. Well, how do we know? Well, because they were going out into the wilderness to hear John the Baptist preaching. They traveled out to see him. All of Israel was going out to see John the Baptist. But the Son of God comes to you. You don't even have to travel anywhere else to go get him. The Son of God, the eternal God of heaven, comes to your town and preaches a message to you of life and salvation, and how do you respond? You mock him? You dishonor him? You disregard him? That's what they do. And how does Jesus respond? Look at verse 58. And he did not do many miracles there. Why? Because of their unbelief. Just like with the parables. He didn't explain them to the unbelieving crowds because of their unbelief. Here, he refuses to do any more miracles for the people of Nazareth. No more. No more for you. Why? Because they didn't believe. These people knew him. What a great blessing it would have been to go to the town he was raised in, have a ministry, and have them accept him. Mark even adds that Jesus wondered at their unbelief. I can't believe you people. I can't believe I know you all, and yet, he's totally astonished. They knew him, but they didn't believe him. Why? Well, because they didn't really know him. Who is he? Jesus of Nazareth, the Anointed One, Messiah, Christ, eternally begotten by the Father, and therefore he has no beginning. He's timeless and infinite and almighty, truly God and truly man, the perfect unity of divinity and humanity who came to earth in the womb of a virgin and he gave his life as a ransom for many. And this is the sinless son of God who died on the cross, the just for the unjust, the righteous for the unrighteous. He died as a sacrifice for sins to satisfy the wrath of God and to earn forgiveness for believers. 
He died, was buried, and rose again the third day. And He rose from the grave and He ascended back to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. And one day He will return as the victorious King, the Alpha and the Omega, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, and He will reign forever and ever. And all who trust in Him will have everlasting life. And so that's the message that I bring to you. Again, a man who was born here. Now, you don't have to listen to me. Again, I'm not expecting any honor. (laughs) But will you believe the gospel? If you don't know Christ, if you're sitting here and you don't know Him, you don't know who He is, you don't know what He's done for you, hear the message of the gospel. Repent of your sins and trust in Jesus Christ and you will have life and forgiveness and hope and joy. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, thank you for letting me preach today. Thank you for sending your Son to give his life for us. And Lord, thank you that even though we wrangled and wrestled through the centuries about understanding this mystery, thank you for giving us what we have in terms of our understanding that Jesus, you are co-eternal of the same divine substance and essence of the Father. And Spirit of God, you are also proceeding from the Father and the Son. You are of the same substance as well. That we worship a, a one God in Trinity, and that Trinity is in unity. Our beloved God, we adore you, we worship you, we, we give you praise and adoration. And you, Almighty God, gave us this gospel, this good news that all people, anywhere, anyone who hears the gospel, who even feels an inkling of a desire to turn and trust you, they can believe on Christ and be saved. Thank you, Lord God, for offering salvation. And we know as Scripture teaches us in Romans 8, that he who did not spare his own son but delivered Him up for us all? How will He not also with Him freely give us all things? What a tremendous honor and privilege it is to be a son and a daughter of God that you would extend such grace and such mercy to a people who are not deserving of either. But oh God, great God, You are worthy of all praise. And so we thank you for your word. We thank you for this message of the gospel. And we thank you for the opportunity to proclaim it. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.